Every once in a while, when the rules change, people need a handbook to help them visualize what might be possible. And everything happens so fast these days, you know. It's a, a new innovation in AI is boring after four days. But I still think there's room for a handbook, for a primer, for a way to have a map, uh, not just have to sort of muddle your way through the territory. We are entering an era that's going to be as different from the old days as electricity marked the difference from the old days back then. And if you said, what I do for a living is something that has nothing to do with electricity, electricity is my enemy, you weren't going to be able to do that well for very long. So the secret is to build tropes in that frequently remind me I'm not talking to a person. And I should do that because I want to, not because you've given me no choice. And a lot of people in many industries are in such a hurry to save money, they have forgotten to do that. This isn't actually a race to get to GPT-9 before anybody else. This is a race to build formats and interfaces and user experiences that we actually want to persist with. But if you are living on the liminal space, the frontier between here and there, and nobody knows exactly what tomorrow is going to be, we need leaders who say, here's a bunch of people, here's a bunch of tools. We're headed north by northwest in this direction. Who wants to come? Welcome back to uh, Invisible Machines. This podcast, Rob, is our ongoing conversation. Um, we're continuing the conversations, I should say, that we started in our book, Age of Invisible Machines. And today on the show, we have a really exciting guest. We get to talk to Seth Godin. Seth actually has a new book coming out called The Song of Significance that um, I was excited to discover as I read through a lot of it that that it really, it's not its not necessarily the same information that's in our book. It's, it's actually quite different information. But I think what he's writing about is, is kind of the ways that our approach to productivity and work uh, isn't really serving employees and it's not serving businesses and that we can, we can strive for a song of significance where we have work that is sort of less tedious, less demanding, and allows us to thrive more as human beings, which I feel like is something that we, we talk about a lot in our book. Um, I feel like our book is maybe a little more tactical in terms of like how to get the technology moving in that direction. But his book kind of felt like an excellent companion in that it's explaining like like why it's such a good idea to be moving in that direction just for humanity. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's definitely one of the great minds of like marketing. And, uh, and, you know, there's no question that marketing is about understanding the machine that is the human, right? The algorithms yeah. that make us tick and buy and, and, and connect with brands and things like that. So... I'm really fascinated to hear his perspective on how it kind of plays a role uh, in all of that and kind of excited to see that he, you know, he's kind of um, taking so much of his thinking and now kind of looking at it at a much higher level around just, you know, companies and humanity as a whole and, you know, what, what makes us feel fulfilled and, and what makes us tick and how to focus on that not just as a way to sell products to people, but as a way to make life more fulfilling for everyone. And that's seems like a great application and a great, like unique perspective and angle to look at this from. So book's great. Yeah. And, and I think so, to, to make those six. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to make those systemic changes, 
requires like some really bold thinking, both in terms of, of redesigning leadership inside of organizations and then also like making the leap uh, technologically with the kind of digital transformations that we spend a lot of time talking about. And I guess, I guess for like uh, designers out there too, who, you know, we talk a bit about skeuomorphic design uh, in our book and, and how that applies to conversational design. Um, but, but he really has a bone to pick with skeuomorphism. Yeah. So if you're a designer who doesn't like skeuomorphism, <laughs> you're, you're going to really love this podcast. So great. Let's get to it, man. All right. We'll take you to Seth right now. Hey, uh, real quick, before we get to this amazing conversation with Seth Godin, I mentioned that his new book, The Song of Significance, is really kind of an excellent companion to the book Rob and I wrote, uh, Age of Invisible Machines, uh, so much so that we would like to give away copies of both books. Uh, and the way we're going to do this is we've, we've put a post up on the UX Mag LinkedIn page announcing this contest. And to enter, all you need to do is leave a comment and tag a friend or colleague who you think should read Age of Invisible Machines and The Song of Significance, and who might enjoy the Invisible Machines podcast. We're going to pick 10 winners at random, and for those 10 winners, we will send them a copy of each book and the person who they tagged a copy of each book. So this is a great contest, a great way to, to get some excellent reading material for the summer, and uh, let's get to that conversation now, but don't forget to check out that post on UX Mag on LinkedIn. Why not just follow UX Mag on LinkedIn while you're at it? Might as well subscribe to the UX Mag uh, feed wherever you get your podcasts as well, and the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. And now let's get to this great conversation with Seth Godin. All right, uh, Seth, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I've had a chance to start reading uh, The Song of Significance and I'm really enjoying it. And I think what I'm one of the things I'm liking the most is that it has uh, sort of a tactical approach and a philosophical approach to kind of uh, reimagining the way people work. Uh, that That's kind of something that we try to do with our book as well, like off, offer uh, food for thought as well as kind of like fuel for action. Uh, and it does feel like in this moment where, you know, organizations and individuals are really kind of rethinking everything, that maybe there's a window for this kind of message to get through. And I was just wondering if, if, you're, if you're sensing a convergence of forces that, that make it uh, an especially ripe time for, for this message that you're delivering? Uh, I think it might be audacious and certainly not filled with false humility to point out that Frederick Taylor wrote something in the 1910s that changed the course of our, our time on this planet, and then Peter Drucker did it, and then Tom Peters did it, and then maybe Andy Grove did it. Every once in a while, when the rules change, People need a handbook to help them visualize what might be possible. And everything happens so fast these days, you know. It's a, a new innovation in AI is boring after four days. But I still think there's room for a handbook, for a primer, for a way to have a map, uh, not just have to sort of muddle your way through the territory. Yeah. That's uh, how much, um, it's, it's good question to ponder uh i obviously have my own opinions on this but how much do you think it did just change how much did the world just change in your mind you know versus how much we think it changed i think that uh humans are terrible at noticing the long-term changes they get distracted by the short-term ones instead but you know if we think about 
the Cold War, which lasted for half of many people's lifetime. That was a significant change, and people acknowledged that uh, two countries having weapons that could destroy the planet was a big deal. I think that even before the flurry of the recent uh, illusions and facts around AI, we were seeing a very significant change fueled by what happens when everyone has a supercomputer in their pocket, what happens when there are no more orders of magnitude left to extract from brutal industrial capitalism, and what happens when we don't need to pay attention to geography or space when we're, or time when we're thinking about how we work together. These are a recipe for there has to be a new way of work. And so this is Moore's Law writ large. It is inevitable. And AI just puts sort of a, a frantic frosting on top of that. <laughs> yeah, I sort of see it similarly. It's like, it's like the world's always changing and we're, we're not necessarily noticing. Um, and then something happens that draws everybody's attention to this cumulative change that we haven't been noticing. And, and then everyone gets scared <laughs> because <laughs> they haven't been processing this change along the way. And, and now they've got to process it all at once. Um, and then they go back to work the next day and realize nothing's changed that much. They're still doing relatively the same thing. Just what they talk about's changed <laughs> at work. <laughs> And more the fear well, you know, of what's, it's, it's, what's coming. It's interesting to note that when Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse were fighting out AC versus DC, he electrocuted elephants to make a point right. about how dangerous electricity was. And people freaked out at the movies the first time they showed a train heading toward the screen. We are entering an era that's going to be as different from the old days as electricity marked the difference from the old days back then. And if you said, what I do for a living is something that has nothing to do with electricity. Electricity is my enemy. You weren't going to be able to do that well for very long. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like that electricity idea because you, you kind of, it, it makes it really clear that most of our technology is always built upon someone else's discovery, right? And so we're not at this moment without electricity. For, for most of our discoveries, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and as, as, as it evolves, you know, um, I, I, this is kind of one of those things for me where I, I don't know if what just happened was the invention or popularization of a word, uh, artificial intelligence, but as a person who builds machines, I just have been on this progression of watching machines getting smarter and smarter and smarter. And... And, and I'm not seeing this as like this, this giant leap um, because it's, to me, it's just, I've been watching it pretty closely and seeing that, uh, and I've used this example many times, a skill saw that knows the difference between a two by four and a finger is just a smarter machine. It's not anywhere close to taking over. And that by labeling that saw now, artificial intelligence just by throwing that label on it we anthropomorphize that saw and we turn it into uh, and give it a lot more power than it is it's it just now has a camera and can recognize fingers it might even be a thermal camera right 
and that's all it is. But, but, but we, but we say artificial intelligence and we, we apply this word intelligence to it. And, and then we turn it into a, in our minds, into a being, something that's living. And then we all get scared because it's as if we created something that's alive when, when if we just didn't use the word and we just said, oh, it's a smarter saw, like, would we all be freaking out? Um, and I, I couldn't help, but like one of the most, uh, one of the most, um, I would say, exciting reasons for me to get on this podcast with you was thinking about this idea that 40% of the population is, thinks that AI is, you know, um, gonna, gonna cause more harm than benefit and, and we're better off without it. And it's like a huge number. And I, and I think like, of course, I don't believe that's true because I'm in it and I see it and I see how the player piano actually works. And I know it's not magic, right? <laughs> you know, I, I know that those keys are moving and when you don't see inside, it looks like, oh my God, there's a ghost playing the piano. But all you got to do is open it, look inside, you see a roll of paper and you're like, okay, <laughs> it's just a player piano and now everyone wants one. Um, but how, how is there a way that that we can from a from a you know communication standpoint get people off of this fear um you know is there a way to communicate this and cut through the fear or or do people just want to fear and and that's it oh there's so many juicy things in what you just said uh the first thing i would say is we evolved for millions of years to have a tension between fearing any change, because that's a good way to end up with grandchildren, is to try to stay in a stable environment, but also to be fascinated by change and to create the change. Um, I don't think this is a player piano for a really important reason, which is uh, two important reasons. Number one, even the people who are building this stuff don't know exactly how it works. And uh -huh. number two is, for the first time, we are building machines that will use themselves. And it's this iterative power of it. You know, the Writers Guild didn't go on strike because they don't want people to use Grammarly, right? Grammarly is also artificial intelligence, but it's not seen as a threat. But if you multiply enough Grammarly's time to each other, you get something that can write a mediocre Seinfeld script. To get from right. a mediocre Seinfeld script to a really good Seinfeld script isn't that hard. It's Hard to write an amazing one. You can't write the Marble Rye episode no matter how many computers you put on it. But <laughs> there is going to be the same way there was for electricity, right? If you are uh, somebody who worked with a shovel, the steam shovel was not your friend. And the opportunity you had was to figure out how to get a job where you used a steam shovel, not one where you competed with a steam shovel. So... I guess my answer to your question is uh, there's nothing we can say or do to make the fear go away. What people will always do is respond if it produces value that makes things cheaper, more convenient, or feel more powerful. And as those things show up, no matter how much somebody's against it, you know, you may recall just 10 years ago, people were freaking out about LED light bulbs. And yet, <laughs> Now their house is filled with LED light bulbs because they're cheaper, more convenient, and more powerful. And the same thing's going to happen here, but there's going to be a lot more uh, 
disruption than the LED light bulbs cost. Yeah, you you bring up a really good point. I think um, I think of fractals. You know, when you when you mention the people building it don't know, they, they know the input but they don't know the output. Um, and I think of fractals. You know, where where you have these these like you know very simple algorithms. Well, somewhat simple as in comparison to the complexity of the output. Um, it, you have these these you know these simple algorithms that run you know, a billion times and then produce these super, super complex outputs. Um, and this, you know, th this has a name, it's the, you know, it's, it's these unpredictable outcomes, right? And, and trying to, to manage unpredictable complexity. Um, and so I think, you know, when you think of somebody building something and, and, and we're used to as engineers being really good at predicting the output when uh -huh. we design something, like we know when these two things work, uh, we know what the output's going to be, and we generally are pretty good at at being somewhat close. Like you know, there's testing and there's anomalies and surprises, but generally speaking, we're in a pretty reasonable place to predict the output of something we engineer. And now we have this thing where it's like fractals, where it's it's almost like it's like being a farmer versus being an engineer now where you have to experiment, you know, it's like, it's like biology now. Right. And, and, but we do have mechanisms for managing, you know, the development of drugs and, and these unpredictable outcomes, right. You know, the same goes for, for editing genes. Like there's a lot of templates we have for this. It just, it just moved from engineering to you know biology process right and and we just have to recognize that as engineers that oh we've got to look at this differently but i do think that that change we might be over analyzing it and and just because that output is unpredictable we may ascribe intelligence to the thing right that really is simple in its basic core but produces and it's, and it's complexity. But again, I think that anthropomorphizing is something that every human I've ever met does. It's a really efficient way to imagine what's going to happen next. The thing that we've got, you know, so Joni Mitchell in her live album, Shadows and Light, someone calls out a request and she self-effacingly laughs and says, I don't think anybody said to Vincent, please paint Starry Starry Night again. <laughs> and when you listen to Herbie Hancock talking about playing in the quintet with Miles, they explored the liminal space between what is and what might be. But almost nobody goes to concerts to hear that. They go to concerts to hear Van sing Moondance again. Yeah. Right? And so we live in a culture that has been driven by engineers, not poets. And what we are saying to the engineering mindset is we have no greatest hits for you. What we have is a tireless, very fast, always on system that will surprise you almost every time. Because by the time you figure out what it's gonna do, we will have improved it. And so we're asking just about every human being now to add value by trading force, by dancing with this unpredictable system that often produces junk. 
to bring good taste and leadership to it. And most of the humans, the three of us know, are ill-trained to do that. Yeah. Well, there's also this problem, too. I think uh, it's an anthropomorphism thing where with conversational AI in particular, when something starts talking back to us in, a, in natural language, I think we're disarmed in ways that, that we weren't prepared for. I mean, I, I know how this stuff works, but I've had interactions with GPT <laughs> where I momentarily forget what I'm doing and I want to start an argument or something. And I feel like that presents a really big wrinkle, especially for designers. And, and I wonder what, what, kind of, what kind of thoughts you have on, on how we might move forward in a way that, that people have a really clear picture of what they're dealing with and aren't necessarily anthropomorphizing it, or can we even accomplish this that? This is a great, great question. You know, the two problems with UX is people ignore the U and they ignore the X. And <laughs> we imagine that we already know what they should do because we know the answer, but they don't. They don't have context. And so empathy for the user is very hard. And constantly focusing on the experience as opposed to what we insist was going to happen is really hard because somebody who doesn't plug in their PC before calling tech support is an idiot, but they're also our mother and their our uncle and they're the user. They're the one who's paying. And so if they forgot to plug in their PC, it's our fault at some level because we didn't build a experience that they could have that was positive. And what's going to... So I did a podcast uh, three weeks ago. I asked uh, GPT five questions, and then I trained 11 labs in my voice by giving the six-hour audio book to people there were great and helping me do that. And then I had 11 labs read my Q&A with chat GPT. And I didn't tell anyone until the end of the podcast. That's what I did. So the whole podcast took 15 minutes to make, and it's 20 minutes long, uh, which is pretty cool. And even my wife could not tell it wasn't my voice. So when uh -huh. we look at that and we think about user experience, a whole bunch of things that we are used to using as tropes are void. So there's a difference between me calling an actual human and me calling a, a computer that thinks it's a human in terms of my experience. Because if I ask it even one question, that demonstrates the uncanny valley and shows it's not what you said it was, I don't like you more, I trust you way less. And that trust is really hard to reclaim. So the secret is to build tropes in that frequently remind me I'm not talking to a person and I should do that because I want to, not because you've given me no choice. And a lot of people in many industries are in such a hurry to save money, they have forgotten to do that. Yep. Yeah. Do you do you think do you think it's false advertising when a when a machine behaves like a human, uh, and and doesn't like you know we were talking to folks at MIT in a recent podcast and and they made it really clear it's the system's job to. To, to actually remind folks that, you know, there's no we, there's just you and I'm a machine, right? Um, you know, at these moments where, where people ascribe some sort of uh, anthropomorphic relationship going on, that the machine's job is to understand that humans have a tendency to 
cozy up with you know with these these you know fake beings and and that the the machine's job and the designer of the machine's job is to keep reminding of every time that it's just a machine and the inverse of that is like that responsibility if you don't the absence of doing it is is a deception right in a way um and 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 we do have tools for deception right like oh yeah but we have so, legal tools for deception <laughs> so i i think the moral conversation is a useful one to have but it's not relevant because many of the biggest folks who are doing this don't have any morality because the bureaucracy has replaced it i think a more interesting conversation for folks who do what you do so well is to build the analogy to skewmorphs. Skewmorphs are shameful, lazy shortcuts that no self-respecting designer should put their name on. That uh -huh. I've been on the internet since 1976. I was using online services in the 80s. When you start drawing little pictures of telephones and files and analog watches on the screen, you were being lazy and you did it wrong. And part of the magic of what the iPhone team did is they resisted skewmorphs. In the early designs, it was filled with skewmorphs, but they took them out. They said, this is an actual useful tool and we don't have to remind you of something else. We can just have it be a tool. And so I have seen all the warnings that ChatGPT puts on the whole interface. That's the wrong uh -huh. way to do it because we immediately forget them because right. it's easier to just anthropomorphize it. We have to actually design it differently. Then when we add a voice to it, if the voice sounds like Walter Cronkite, I don't care what Walter says to me, I'm going to imagine that it's a person. So let's make it the tool it should be because when people do that, those tools will do better than their competitors who are filled with lazy skewmorphs and so I think we need to resist that temptation for that shortcut. No, I, I, I love that. I think um, I, I, I sometimes hope, I think hope is, is the word I'll use here, that just like in design, skamorphism was like a phase. It was just a phase to get people from an un, into an unfamiliar place to relate them to something they knew and then very quickly, we all said, why are we putting these drop shadows on? Why are we doing this extra work to make it look like an actual physical button? Let's go to flat design. Like, let's, th this is stupid. And, and it really just was a transitionary period. It was just a moment where we used it to help make the, the interface more familiar because we were used to physical buttons and we went from, you know, from the, the button pushing on the phone to a screen and we're like okay like help me bridge over to that so we do these stupid drop shadows and then later everyone's like this is dumb and I'm, I'm i'm kind of feeling and hoping that that's where we are here it's just simply we're we're using human conversation as as a bridge to get into this and then it very quickly we're gonna do what my kids do which is you know be rude to the alexa because they don't need to say hello and goodbye and all of the niceties and they figure that out pretty quickly <laughs> and they just get to commands. It's the thing I worry about 
again, because I think this is a separate category, is it caught on so fast because it piggybacks on our humanity. And what I've already seen is that kids who are trained to be mean to Alexa are more likely to be mean to people. Yeah, I I agree with that 100%. I I wonder if... uh... Maybe uh, maybe we just need to make it so that uh, these bots aren't allowed to speak in the first person. They have to refer to themselves in the third person. People always get irritated when other people do that. If I say Josh doesn't know the answer, I think I, I alienate myself that- a little. So there, there's one possible design tip. That's I think that's brilliant. I mean, yeah. I was lucky enough when I was a kid to work with Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. And I know that Isaac and Arthur wish they were here right now. Um, they wrote down a lot of good rules, a lot of ways that we should think about this. The problem that they never, it, or if they thought about it, they just thought it wouldn't make a good book, is when short-term public, short-term thinking public companies start showing up, they sometimes forget to build the system the right way. So interesting note, um, when, the, when electricity first started showing up in people's homes, there were no plugs there was just a thing hanging from the ceiling that a light bulb could switch it, screw into. And the mount is called an Edison mount for obvious reasons. So when the, when the washing machine was invented, uh, there was no plug. You just had to screw it into your Edison mount. And washing machines that were of the day were unbalanced. And so it would sort of move as it was churning. And dozens of people were killed by washing machines because they were strangled by this thing as it moved around the house and they it's true anyway oh. the point is if you think about the durability of the electrical outlet and how thoughtfully designed it is if you think about how hard you could slam down a bell system telephone and have it not crack these were companies who chose to build something for more than a week they said uh-huh. what's the right design here. The Honeywell thermostat is round for a reason because if it gets mounted by a semi-competent craftsperson, it still looks okay. And (laughs) we need that sort of elegance. And if you, to speak up for it the way you were so eloquent, at least we can establish a standard that says this isn't actually a race to get to GPT-9 before anybody else. This is a race to build formats and interfaces and user experiences that we actually want to persist with. Yeah, it's definitely a design problem. Yeah. <laughs> At this point, uh, I'm we... supposed to mention that I wrote a book. And oh, yeah. it's about this, this idea that the race to the bottom is very hard to win. And if you do win it, you're not happy. What it means to race to the top is to get steam shovels to work for you, to bring humanity to the work, to do that surprising thing that people will seek out. And it used to be reserved for just a few companies because everyone else could say, well, we make air fryers as cheap as we can. But now that's the only space left is not to get faster and cheaper, not to be the cheapest freelancer on Upwork. Because if you're the cheapest freelancer on Upwork, you're competing with mid-journey, right? So the Uh alternative is to say, I cost more, but I'm worth more than I cost. Yeah. And I use mid journey sometimes to 
to accelerate my work, but it's still my work. We, we kind of talk in the book a bit about, um, well, it's, it's advice that we give uh, in real life too, that as companies are trying to begin a journey with conversational AI and building automations, it's, it's really smart to start internally and start building with your own team um, for the obvious reason that then you're not rolling out these, you know, uh, unpredictable automations to your customers. You have this more captive audience, but it also gives uh, the workers a chance to take part in building those automations. And they, they're the ones who really understand the problem so they can figure out the solutions that are going to be better than what they alone are able to do. And then you also have this added benefit of them becoming comfortable with this technology and kind of hopefully seeing its limitations as well as its opportunities. Does that fit in? Um, I haven't got all the way through the book, but I, I am really, I'm loving it. And, I, and you mentioned this idea of getting people enrolled in the journey and leaning into their work. And I, to me, it felt like those two things uh, could serve, or at least the, that approach could serve the purpose that you mentioned. I, and I wonder what you thought about that. So what I mean by enrolled in the journey is if you are in the neighborhood soccer team, there's nobody on the team who has to yell at you to get you to kick the ball harder. You want to be there. Same thing with the community orchestra. The mindset of industrial capitalism has been, we need to surveil people. We need, they need to be captives and they need to turn around. Mm -hmm. Google, last time I checked, had more than 3,000 people who did nothing but feed the so-called automated search engine. And each one of them had a little tiny trivial job that often got outsourced to people who had miserable working conditions. But when you talk to someone who loved working there, they were thrilled at the mission of organizing the world's information and being part of this company that did things a certain way. And that journey, that sense of meaning and accomplishment is critical because the people you most need to work with you are there voluntarily. They have to work somewhere, but they don't have to work for you. And so if we're going to go ahead and bring these tools in and everyone's going to do a different job three years from now than they do now, everybody, they probably need enough uh, mission and passion and meaning to want it to happen. And so, yeah, Josh, I think your idea of teaming up somebody who knows how the innards work with someone who's doing a job that will use the innards and having them co-pilot to build solutions makes sense. You know, my, my dad, who's passed away, um, had the biggest hospital crib factory in the world, which doesn't mean it's very big because hospital cribs don't break. And the place is, was over 100 years old and was filled with really old, rusty piles of parts because you needed parts all the time, but you didn't know which parts. So you'd buy uh -huh. a thousand at a time. And he went out and bought, which at the time was a big deal 15, 20 years ago, a million dollar uh, CNC machine where you would put blocks of metal in at one end and exactly the screws you needed for tomorrow would come out. And you just set it up at night and go home and in the morning, the parts for, and they threw out tons and tons of stuff. And the plant was UAW organized. They bent steel from scratch to make these things. But the way my dad involved the team and didn't say to them, your job is to follow instructions, but said to them, your job is to make the instructions, not one person pushed back against this machine. No one said, well, that's going to get rid of these three jobs. They said, how do we do this? Because our job is to make cribs for sick kids. 
And the more we do uh-huh. that, the happier we are. Yeah, yeah there's a real opportunity uh, yeah. for creative I, problem solving. Go ahead, Rob. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and that could bind us. That could cause us to have more quality interactions with each other. I there's sort of two two things. I mean, I, I can't I can't let it go without commenting on you on the fact that like you know a lot of these big inventions like the railroad are on the backs of some pretty crappy jobs and some people that made some pretty big sacrifices and we do tend to ignore those people when we look back historically and here we are again no difference thousands of people that are tagging data is what makes these engines what they are even for open ai not it's that that human reinforced learning uh that is where all the magic is happening and and yeah those are really crappy jobs and very mundane and boring and and here we are again right they're behind the scenes people don't tend to talk about those people as the inventors of this but really they're the ones doing the lifting and i'm sort of glad you pointed that out um but on a different point uh you know i i i've sort of been thinking about this you're you know to me you're the purple cow guy you know that's you'll always be the purple cow guy (laughs) um (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and 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 I kind of have this this thing for those who who are a lot that know about it, and um, is you know, ChatGPT can't do purple cows because it's not trained on these on these these different. It's it's generic, right? And and the idea is that it will create a a a, a decent version of something, but. But, you know, does it just raise the bar on our creativity? In other words, mediocrity is just, you know, is not a job anymore, producing mediocre, co- mediocre copy, and that, and that we're going to have to up-level. And for those who have a hard time coming up with that creative idea, they're just going to have to join forces with a team, just like writers on Saturday Night Live have to work as a writing team to be funny for a half an hour. You know, is it just... Is it just that we're going to have to work more closely together and co-create more and and try to raise the bar, um, or do you think AI can create purple cows and and? Okay, so I totally agree with your last point. This is the end of mediocrity. If you are doing a job that's a- mediocre means average. If you're doing a job that's average and the spec can be written, I can almost certainly find a computer or a robot who can do it cheaper than you. There's it's just going to be indefensible going forward. That's a massive shift. But as for purple cows, you know, my book was written for people who have enough cultural background and strategic insight to want to have a roadmap to do this on purpose. But if you listen to Andrew Hickey's podcast, which I highly recommend, History of Rock and Roll and 500 Songs, is very idiosyncratic. Each episode is two or three hours long. It's going to take him 20 more years to finish. Um, when you hear about a song that's a brain-dead, knockdown top five hit that changed the culture, it's almost never something that was created on purpose. That in Herbie Hancock's autobiography, when he talks about Headhunters, he had one album after another where he thought they were great and no one wanted it. And then he did Headhunters and everyone was like, you're a genius! Right. You know, so I think it's there's going to be 10,000 monkeys and 10,000 typewriters, and they're going to type a lot of Shakespeare. The hard part isn't that. It's going to be being a publisher, 
which is bringing good taste and assets to bring a new idea to people who want to pay for it. And you're going to have these 10,000 monkeys and these 10,000 typewriters, but you're going to have to pick. And you're going to pick one based on your understanding of what helps an idea spread and your cultural understanding of why would someone talk about that? That's what makes it a purple cow. So, you know, I think that the, the, what Lauren Michaels gets credit for with SNL is making 30 years of not very good television so that he could make six hours of unbelievable television. Uh-huh. And no one there is sure when you're going to be doing a Conehead sketch. No one, when they did the Coneheads in dress rehearsal, thought it was going to be something I'd be talking about 35 years later. But there you go. Well, that only happens because they did all those other sketches that didn't really work. Right. Yeah, it's well, that, you uh, uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, it's sort of like mutation, right? You need yeah. mutation for evolution. Um, but when it comes to, to business, you can't, you can't experiment on your customers. You can't just do random greetings <laughs> to see which ones, you know, you, you, you need that level of prediction that humans provide, which is, hey, we need to experiment, but within these boundaries. Right. And yeah. yeah. Josh, Go, uh, sorry, Josh. To, to chime in with something? Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, uh, it's, you've, you've brought up Herbie Hancock cock a couple times, and uh, my, my son is a jazz musician, so I spent a lot of time thinking about jazz, and you know, I know that AI exists now that can play a jazz solo, but when you think about what a jazz solo is actually communicating, I mean, it's communicating both an unbelievable amount of discipline but also this surge of emotion that it's hard to imagine a machine being able to, to really convey that. And so I think one of the comforting things about uh, getting rid of mediocrity, in a sense, is that people might now be more drawn to seeing exceptional human endeavors. Like, I don't think, I don't think live music is necessarily at risk. It's, it's possible that live music will become even more appreciated. Yeah. So yeah. one more Herbie Hancock story. I keep bringing him up because I'm in the middle of his autobiography. So it's 1964, it's the new quintet. He's with Miles, he's 24 years old. He's on stage in a crowded, crowded auditorium. He's got the piano and he's setting uh, Miles up to play uh, So What from the kind of blue album, best-selling jazz album of all time. So the stakes are really high. And there's two notes left and Herbie hits a clunker of a chord. Just wrong wrong <laughs> and Been he there. shrinks to like this big and his miles is picking up the trumpet as this chord goes down and in less than a beat miles rewrote the entire solo and played a solo that matched the chord herbie had just mangled and after the performance herbie sheepishly said and herbie from the book doesn't have a small ego uh, Herbie cheapishly uh, apologized to Miles and said, I'm really sorry for that wrong chord. And Miles said, it wasn't wrong. It was just a chord. And then uh, what are you going to do with it? So I know a lot of jazz musicians. They work really hard. Sooner or later, they many of them start phoning it in. And that jazz solo sounds just like the other jazz solo. But when the magic is present, it's because something happened right here, right now, with a human being who has the same stresses and noises in their head that you do. And that is where we discover extraordinary uh, value. So you're right. 
real live music like that is going to go up in value. The live music of a drum machine and recorded vocals, we're not even going to pay a dollar for that unless the crowd is a crowd we want to be with. Yeah, they'll just become DJs, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had this theory that people, at our core, we value, um, or at least one of the main values we have, universal values, is self-discipline. So we often see the self-discipline behind a lot of these things, and and we don't have respect for self-discipline in a machine because it doesn't it doesn't need it, right? It's there is no challenge it overcomes, and the best characters are the ones that overcame some challenge, right? That 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 rose to it, that that was that failed and then overcame, and and I think we see that, and that's why we are amazed by talents that are even ridiculous, like the Guinness World records for whatever crazy thing like sitting cross-legged or whatever <laughs> why why is that impressive to us because we can see the self-discipline we know what went into that and we know that we all struggle with that and that that is something we admire um and yeah would we will we stop because a machine can sit cross-legged longer no it's just irrelevant it's just will more people be pursuing those kinds of endeavors that's that's my hope. I mean, that, Interesting. that would be ideal. And, and one thing you pointed out, which was probably an accident, but the early versions of GPT that were slow, that was brilliant UX. That was brilliant. Because as you were waiting for it to complete the sentence, you were acting the way you do with a human, which is you think you know where the sentence is. Just tell me the punchline. I get it. Right? <laughs> it, was, it was revealed over time, and you imagined that there was someone at the other end typing as fast as they could. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I the, think I think one one uh, possible outcome too is that you know with these automations and with people getting rid of the tedious tasks in their lives, that maybe they can that we can have more time to spend uh, on creative problem solving and on being creative on on figuring out the things that really bring us to life. Um, and whether that's inside an organization or inside your house, it can it can maybe be more seamless, which I think would make people feel less lonely. Uh, it seems like this conversational AI, our eagerness to connect with it is almost uh, there because technology has failed us and left us all feeling so isolated and kind of trapped in these weird little bubbles, uh, these echo chambers. Um, yeah. So yeah, maybe, maybe we're do headed not, for do a, not a overlook. Moment. Do not overlook just how deep the indoctrination goes. So hmm. ChatGPT makes it very clear that the high school essay is doomed. We, the, you can, if you're a teacher, depending on high school essays, to do any sort of pedagogy, you're an idiot. And you can't then ban GPT and say, no, we need to go through this. What you can do is say, this is great, because now I can train kids to tell the difference between good uh, essays built by a computer and bad ones to get them, right? We can have actual human interaction in class instead of me spending hours correcting Oxford commas. But that's almost not happening at all, because the system is so entrenched about what we are supposed to teach people to do, to ask, will this be on the test? Well, AI enters this new realm where there is no test. There's just no test. While there is this a constant challenge to innovate, and yet we don't spend five minutes on that in school. So when it shows up and people are given this opportunity at work or at home, all they're going to do with it, many people, is use it as a chance to watch more TV and 
to stop paying attention because that's what we got pushed to do, to consume our way out of our malaise instead of to create our way out of it. Yeah, and, and, and does, it, does it just reveal a weakness in, in testing as a tool for measuring whether someone comprehended something? I mean, isn't that really yeah. what's happening? It's not that, it's not that the machine is, you know, is, is, is doing anything else other than like an emperor's has no clothes kind of moment where we're like, oh, right. you know what? I can memorize the answers to a test if you give me the answers before. I can get the highest grade in class but I didn't understand anything. I haven't comprehended a thing. Right. And, and so how would the teacher figure that out? If they thought, you know, you have that teacher that, that is like, wait, this is too perfect. <laughs> I think he cheated. I, then, then what do they do next, right? right. They, they try what to understand waste. if you actually comprehended it. Right. And they but wouldn't give you another to, test. To just, they're just amplifying this surveillance thing. What we need to do is say, we have six hours together. Let us come together as people and figure out how to build projects, solve interesting problems, lead and connect in real time. If you do that every day for six hours, for four months, you will transform the lives of every person in that room. And of course it's hard, but teachers signed up for hard. Unfortunately, they've been pushed to be uh, test makers and, and yeah. implementers instead. Yeah, I did hear a from a high school student I did hear from a high school student recently that his English teacher had asked him specifically to write an essay with ChatGPT and then find all the things that were wrong with it. So, so the right thing is happening uh, at least at this one high school near my house. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I just I always go to like if if a, if a kid cheated on a test, what does the teacher do? They have a conversation about the 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 content with the student and then they figure out if they know it or not and and you go well, why don't we skip the test part and just say what if teaching is just a conversation you know if someone's contributing to the conversation they're comprehending the material if if there's no contribution they're not maybe conversation instead of standing up in front of a class and just re, you know regurgitating ideas hoping they're paying attention and saying like get get the class into the conversation, maybe change the way we teach to be more conversational, you'll know that they understand and comprehend it because they're contributing to a conversation, not being tested on whether they paid attention to what you said in class. Yeah. I wrote a book about education called Stop Stealing Dreams. It's free on the internet. And uh, four million people have read it, many of whom have written back to me. It's astonishing. Everyone agrees but nobody can figure out how to get their leverage into the system to fix it. To change it, yeah. Well, I, I don't want to leave this conversation without asking you the tough question, which is the the people who are who are now like running, you know, the the companies, the large companies today, the medium sized companies today, the the leadership of these companies, um, how a how should they prepare themselves for this massive change? How should they think about preparing themselves for this massive change? And the tough question is, is resigning, like, is, is, that, is that really the best? Like, are they the wrong people? Like, is it, can they, can they adapt? Or do we just, are they, have they been chosen for their ability to, to, to not take risk and, and to preserve wealth 
right? And and they're the wrong people. What a great question. All right. So Steve Ballmer, by almost every measure, we're CEO in our lifetime. He was a manager. He was not a leader. He missed five out of the five most important moments in tech of that entire decade. His successor, Satya Nadella, is a leader, not a manager, and they're different jobs. Managers do what they did yesterday, but faster and cheaper. They turn the dials to increase measured productivity. And if you run an actual factory, you probably need managers. McDonald's needs managers and United Airlines need them too. But if you are living on the liminal space, the frontier between here and there, and nobody knows exactly what tomorrow is going to be, we need leaders who say, here's a bunch of people, here's a bunch of tools, we're headed north by northwest in this direction, who wants to come? And there are an enormous number of companies in tech who got seduced by high valuations and who got seduced by what they thought was a system that was going to stay the way it was for a very long time who are managers and who are just extracting profit. But they're going to go away really fast. So I don't think they have to be fired or resigned, but I think you have to look in the mirror and say, I am choosing to be incompetent at the new thing so I can get good at it, as opposed to insisting I know all the answers and I can command and control people about what they should do next. It is a process of pathfinding. It is not... A, prof, a process of profit extraction. Yeah, yeah, it's that explore, exploit. You, I just, I, sometimes I wonder if it's the same people uh, that write the book, that sell and promote the book, right? Um, or anything and say like, are there just people that are really good at exploit, at collecting royalties? Um, and, then, and then there's people really good at creating and building something, or or is it a choice? Is it just a mindset that, that they just have to flip? I think all of this is a choice. I think dunking a basketball is not a choice. You're either tall or you're not. But I think the real, the real skills of imagination and empathy and connection and vulnerability and uh, agreeability and all the things, they're all learned. That what I found from studying leaders through the years is the only thing they have in common is their leaders, right? That people might have a profound speech impediment. They might be really tall or heavy or come from a place that no one else you know is from that place. They still ended up being leaders. It's a choice. And if you care enough and you and are work, willing to work at it, I've never met someone who couldn't do it. So then it comes down to like the, the it, you know, I'm going to oversimplify in AI terms, but the feedback loop. If, yeah. if if the feedback loop is negative for taking risk, then you're going to not be a risk taker. And so maybe there's just something wrong with the feedback loop in all of these companies, and that's what they've got to focus on changing. Uh, it's not like take risks. It's more like change your feedback mechanism yeah. and risk will happen. Right. And the speed is the key. Like So when email first started taking off in the 80s, a whole bunch of CEOs said, I will outlast this. I will be retired before it's required. And they did. 10 years and then they could leave. Now, the future hits us with a two by four in the face every single day. You can't out, you can't wait it out. It's here. So this accelerating cycle is 
the essence of it. And the pandemic accelerated it. The long overdue focus on social injustice accelerated it. So many things where we say, I cannot wait this. It's here. What am I going to do? All right. I think that's a good question to to leave it on. What should we do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I feel like your book has has some... Your book has some good yeah. answers. I'm actually, I feel like I'm at the yeah. point where I'm going to, if I hand someone our book, I'm going to tell them they need to read your book as well, because I, I feel like they really fit together very well. And it's uh, it was a thrill well, that means a lot. to chat with Thank you today. You. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you both. Yeah, it was great. I appreciate great, great to have this chat. Keep making the ruckus, guys. We'll see you. Thanks again so much for joining us on Invisible Machines. As I mentioned earlier, we are giving away copies of Seth Godin's new book, The Song of Significance, along with copies of Age of Invisible Machines by myself and Rob Wilson. To enter, you just need to go to the UX Mag LinkedIn page. Might as well follow UX Mag while you're there. Uh, Look for a post announcing this contest, and then just leave a comment tagging a friend or colleague who you think uh, needs to read these books or would enjoy these books and we will pick 10 winners at random, and we will send a copy of each book to those winners, as well as to the person that they tagged in the comment. Really cool giveaway, great summer reading coming your way. As always, go ahead and subscribe to UX Magazine wherever you get your podcasts. It's the best way to hear new episodes as they drop. You can also watch episodes of this podcast on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Uh, Hopefully you watch this one. Seth has an amazing background. He holds up an early promotional milk carton from his his book, The Purple Cow. Uh, Really cool stuff on the YouTube channel for Invisible Machines. Thanks, as always, to the team at UX Magazine for making this podcast possible. Thank you for the marketing team at OneReach.ai for all their help as well. And thank you, as always to our video editor, Michael Litvinov, for making this podcast look and sound fantastic. Can't wait to connect with you again next week on Invisible Machines.